Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 45, titled Know Thyself with D.P. Knutin. D.P. Knutin is a marketer by trade and a compassionate listener by nature. In this week's episode, D.P. shares his experience of loss and hard-earned authenticity, both of which fuel the heart behind his professional work and personal growth. If you're interested, he also hosted a conversation with me on his show, so the link for that will be in the show notes below. But really, I hope you get to know this incredible human who sees people right through all the facades and just wants us to come to the surface and be genuine and real about who we are and what we've experienced. Let's listen. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Restorative Grief Podcast with Mandy Capehart. I'm here today with my friend D.P. Knutson. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you so much, Mandy, for having me on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So, D.P., for anybody who doesn't know who you are yet, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, the main thing, I mean, since we're Americans, we have to define ourselves by what we do, our job titles (laughs) and stuff like that. So, I've been an advertising and marketing communications guy forever, creative director and copywriter, and literally going on 30 years doing that. I have a podcast related to branding, specifically personal branding or small business branding, which, by the way, are the same thing. (laughs) You are your personal brand, but you also are your small business brand, even if your business is a business of one up to, I'd say, about a business of 50. And that's just an arbitrary number. But anyway, I've, I've written a couple of books about that, and I have a podcast called Nonfiction Brand, which is all about that. Uh, but most of all, I am the father of three daughters who are now all in college. One actually graduated from college. And oh, so it's me, my wife and two dogs now. Okay. So I, I love the idea that we are our own brand because I am a, sal- a small business owner and I'm just, it's just me. And I've had that in the back of my mind this whole time. Like I have to be authentic and very careful everywhere I go because I represent what I do, but everything that I do represents who I am as well. So I want to make sure all of my values are in alignment, no matter what I say or do. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, you know, the old saying, you are what you eat. Well, you are what you tweet. Yeah. You are what you post, <laughs> you are what you talk in public about. And one of the things when you're doing uh, something to build a personal brand is uh, there's an, a concept I have called selective authenticity, which is, yes, be authentic. But there is such a thing as TMI, too much information. Yes. So you don't have to scratch very deep to figure out where I exist on the political spectrum of blue to red or red to blue or however you want to grade that. But I don't rub it in anybody's face because part of what I do is I work with everybody to bring out the completely true stories about who they are, what they do and how they do it, regardless of my personal ideas of what they should or shouldn't be. Cause here's the fact, what I think doesn't matter because they are who they are. I am who I am. And to be true to myself, I first need to know who I am. You know, if I were to distill everything I teach down to a bumper sticker, it's very simple. Know who you are so you can be it. And that's kind of the platform upon which I pontificate on a regular basis. (laughs) 
I love the idea of be, know who you are so that you can be it because it, it beautifully transfers over to what I do in the grief world. So recognizing that every one of our stories is unique and ensuring that the conversations I have with any client, individual or group has an element of reckoning with who we were post grief or pre grief and who we are post grief as if there's a shift, because I think you have an incredible story to tell about what that shift can look like and also how the authenticity has to be what bubbles up. So what is a branding expert like you doing on a grief show? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, the reality is that uh, I saw the write-up about you and your podcast and I was like, what could I actually talk about? And then I realized, I looked back at the, call them grief episodes in my life. And you know, I have the normal stuff ranging from pets that died when I was little to grandparents that died and stuff like that. And then I went, oh, yeah, there was kind of a big thing that happened in 2007 when my younger brother passed away. And then my father passed away three months later. And I didn't that didn't come to mind first for me because I think I've done what a lot of people do when it comes to your grief, which is shove it in the dark recesses of your mind so that you can get on with your life. Because this happened when I had three children aged, I was I would guess around eight to maybe 12 or something. Maybe maybe they might have all been under 10. And as a father, you know, kids under 10, I didn't, I didn't have time to go into a defensive crouch or any type of grief ball. I had to do what men are generally really good at doing, which is seal it up and shove it to the back of the room. Yeah. And for the longest time, I mean, I can still remember when I got the phone call from my older brother about my brother. And by the way, this the brother who passed away, his name was Tom. We were very, very close. When we were little, people would ask if we were twins. Now we were a year apart, but we were uh, considered twins because we were attached at the hip. We had the same friends. We did the same stuff. We were in Boy Scouts together. And when we went on campouts, we would share the same tent, you know, all that stuff. And he was the type of quiet guy who everyone loved as a friend. And I was kind of the big mouth that was class clown like. And I always felt that all our shared friends were his friends because he was the deep, rich friend. And I was just the flashy clown friend. <laughs> and he always considered our friends, my friends, because I was the one that was more fun and stuff like that. So mm. in spite of the fact that we loved each other deeply, we had, you know, those resentments that siblings have. And, you know, I've, I, 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 the, the whole idea of growing up in someone's shadow, he was a year younger than me. So all the teachers I had, he had the year after I had them. So he would walk in and he was tarred with my brush until they came to know who he was. And, and then they find out, Oh, I like you better, you know, <laughs> almost, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say that uniformly, but uh, yeah. I will say that he was that quiet, steady, stalwart kid who became everyone's, oh, take him for granted friend, you know? And when he passed away, he had a congenital heart defect and 
when he passed away, it was sudden, but not shocking, or it was shocking and sudden. I don't know. But we knew that he was, well, put it this way. The doctor said we knew he wasn't going to live to be an old man. We didn't expect him necessarily to die at the age just over 40. And it was a sudden cardiac event. And they believe he was dead before he hit the floor. Wow. Even talking about it now, it, it, it just kind of, it just makes me shake my head, you know, because he uh, was a great family man. We were still close, but, you know, age kind of causes you to drift apart because he had his family. I had my family. We'd get together for larger family events, but that's not the same. But we still would pull out the same shared inside jokes, quote the same dumb movie quotes from movies that we went to together and would laugh about and and all that stuff. It was really hard for me to process his passing. What's notable is you'll hear I'm talking about my brother. I'm not talking about my dad. And there are reasons for that. And it's not that my dad was abusive, maybe a little bit mentally, but certainly not physically too much. I mean, let's face it. uh, His generation was a spanking generation. And, you know, that kind of class clown guy, he kind of attracts the hand of the father onto your buttocks, if you know what I mean. I learned to deal with that through humor, through making people laugh through being kind of preemptively humorous, you know, and it's not unusual for, for people who go into comedy to have that type of protective defensive device developed highly, even as children, because it's a survival mechanism. So these twin events happening at the same time is like one was truly grief. The other one was kind of grief for what never was and never can be now, you know, it's, it's almost like the lost opportunity. And for a long time, I just didn't deal with it. Mm -hmm. I went back to work. I didn't miss a day of work. Everybody had to go to school, be driven to school, all that stuff, all the family activities, nothing ever stopped. Finally, my wife was like, you need to do something. And I don't know what that would be. And I said, well, again, going all the way back to Boy Scouts, Tom and I would love to go on campouts and stuff. And So I went out on a solo backpack trip, just myself for, you know, a couple of nights. And I did what we loved to do, which was start a little campfire and sit around it and just be, you know, the whole be here now thing that everybody loves to teach. The only time I've ever really, really felt that. And I can point to it was on a winter camp out in the Kettle Moraine Southern unit. Which, uh, which is a national forest area in Wisconsin where I live, where my brother and I were sitting in the snow around a campfire, drinking, uh, you know, hot cocoa and making pancakes. And it, if anything, that is the touchstone memory that I keep going back to about my brother. I don't, anyway, I don't even know what question I'm answering at this point, because obviously I, I had some a few things to say about my brother. Loved all of it, too. So don't think that you didn't answer my question. I want to know a little more about how you addressed the idea that men can't grieve, that stuffing and expectation of the big emotions, the big feelings to keep pushing through everything that's in front of you. What was it about that 
touchstone in the new solo camping trip or after that, that really started to bring that the, the truth about, well, men can grieve and actually need to, to the surface for you. What, what was the shift? Well, the shift was a little bit of the sense of relief that occurred because I actually did that. And I'll, I still, I still have the kind of survivors waves that come over you periodically. And I never want to lose that because it's, it's like to lose that would be to forget my brother. You know, it's that old saying that no one truly dies until there's no one left to say their name. Well, I, I say his name practically daily, if not daily. And I never ever want to forget that, but you know, I'm in a house full of women and as much as I kind of do the dad grouse thing and hide in the basement, I still love the fact that they call me on my BS on a regular basis and they will say, dad, it's okay for you to feel bad about your brother not being around. Can you imagine if one of us was gone? And I said, don't even say that, you know, cause that is not thinkable to me. That is yeah. we're on a podcast, but I'm going to show you via zoom <laughs> and I'm going to describe for the audience, this tattoo on my forearm. Oh, okay. Okay. It's all it is, is three circles on a line. Mm -hmm. Unless you've seen the 1984 David Lynch film, Dune, not the new Dune with Timothy Chalamet, but the good Dune. I mean, yes, the, the <laughs> original guilty pleasure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guilty pleasure Dune that my brother Tom and I went to see in 1984. Mm. And we went to it. It was bad, but we loved it. We hated it. We loved the hating it. We quoted from it. The, this is the movie I'm telling you. We quote it from all the time. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, there's a, a guild of space navigators. And just in one tiny scene, there's a, a on-screen thing that says the report from the guild of space navigators. And there's <laughs> this, this graphic, which is three circles on a line what happened was after my brother passed away and one of my daughters was old enough, we started celebrating his birthday by watching Dune 1984. Yes. Dune. And we call it Dune Day. <laughs> Julia, my daughter and I go out and get movie candy and we watch it in the basement. And when she turned 18, she was bound and determined to get a tattoo and I've always been no tattoo dad. No, no way, no way, no way. Why would you ever want to do that? But she said, dad, I, I know what I want to do for my first tattoo. And I said, first tattoo. And then I said, what, what show me. And she pulled out that, that graphic, which was from Dune. And I went, would it be okay if I went with you? Right. Shoot. Now it. I need to do that also. <laughs> yes, I have to. And so literally it's on my right forearm. So mm -hmm. I see it every single day. Yeah. And the thing is I've now rationalized it in a bigger way, which is it's three circles with a line that unites them. Well, the line that unites them is my wife. Mm -hmm. The three circles are my daughters. And then all around it kind of as a protective glow, if you will, is my brother, Tom. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think about when I see it. And so I, what I learned was grief, it, you can, and this was why I don't think I dealt with the grief. I didn't want to wallow personally and make it about me when it's, when I wanted to, what I really wanted to do was celebrate him. 
And so I found and I find that this stupid black on my white skin tattoo is doing an incredibly effective job at centering me and centering my feelings about my brother in a way where I can honor him and think about him every single day. And I'll, I'll be brutally honest. It's also deepened my relationship with my daughter who has a matching version of it. I mean, she was maybe four years old when he passed away, has no memory of him. Yeah. And yet she's honoring him. And that to me is just, just such a fantastic thing. Such a testament to her character as well. That recognition of this is so important and has such value. And she is also in her own way, mourning the loss of what she didn't have. And so for her to recognize that and draw conclusions on how to honor your brother and you and create this even more of a memory around that beautiful ritual of honoring him and watching the movie again and reconnecting with that memory. It's such a powerful method of coming back around and addressing grief and kind of saying hello again and knowing that the emotions that were, that were so significant are not as heavy as they once were. We've, it's not that the grief has gotten less painful. It's that we've become, I, I believe more strong at navigating how to carry that stuff with us because it doesn't hurt less, so to speak. It just feels different as we go through time. Well, and when you use the word carry with us, mm. all of a sudden I flashed on the idea. It's no longer a burden. Mm-hmm. Grief can be a burden. Mm-hmm. What we carry with us is memory as a gift almost what's the opposite of burden uh a gift yeah 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 exactly and Mm -hmm. that was probably the thing that other than that backpacking trip has really helped me the most which is oh as long as i continue to keep his spirit alive he is living through me consequently i better live my best life in honor of him. And, and by the way, my best life is not his best life. I'm not trying to be him. I'm not trying to do him. I, instead I'm doing what I preach, which is get to know yourself so you can know yourself so you can be it. Yeah. It kind of all comes around to that being authentically you or what I like to call say is completely true and completely you. And that actually helps me every single day of my life, because I'm not trying to be what my dad wanted me to be or be like. I'm being myself and in a truly authentic way. So how did this happening, losing your brother and your dad so close, how did this transformation that you've gone through personally impact the way you presented yourself and your work and marketing? How did it change the narrative of what you do? Well, it made me question the entire structure of the ladder I was climbing, the goals that I had, the way it supported what my kind of prime directive was as an individual, you know, because it made me realize that, oh, the organizing principle of my life is my family. And when I say my family, I mean the family over which I have the most control. I call us the five. There are five of us, my wife, myself, and my three daughters. And we have two dogs, so call it the seven. When I call it the five, it's like, it's an acceptance of the fact that, yes, I have a larger extended family, but I can't affect them. 
I can't affect in any meaningful way. It doesn't mean I discard them or anything like that. It, it just means that I recognize my power is not infinite. I have every day the power to affect positively the life of five specific people. And I'm a bit of a fan of stoic philosophy. So I believe the only person I can truly affect is myself. Mm -hmm. But as a father, I have to believe that I have some pretty heavy influence over my children, except I am not in any way, any type of helicopter parent. My wife would love me to be, but I will not be because I want them to discover who they are so they can be who they are so they can know who they are and they can be who they are. So when these, this, this whole thing, I, I was working in ad agencies in 2007 and I did for several years after that, but over time it became apparent to me that that's not what I wanted What I wanted was to be fully present in my life and not working for someone else the majority of every day. And one of the things that when I talk to people about building their personal brand, I'll I'll ask this question. Picture in your mind a continuum. At one end is bureaucrat. At the other end is entrepreneur. Bureaucrats are on Wednesday at 2 p.m. I do this. Entrepreneurs are, I have no idea what I'm doing today. Where on the continuum do you fit? And for the longest time, I was on the side that was closer to not I was I was right near the middle, but it was definitely on the bureaucrat side. And I went, I have never, ever liked that. I am I'm very close to the far end on the entrepreneurial side. So why am I in an organization where it's not feeding me, my soul, my my energy? It made me look at things and go, you know what? If I were to drop dead like my brother, would I look back and say I did the life that I wanted to live as best as I could? Yeah. I'm not going to say I'm, I'm going to live a perfect life or anything like that. But at least was I trying? Was I on the road that for my life, not a road that was paved by someone else or by society or by expectation or by family responsibility or tradition, stuff like that? It made me start really, really thinking about, you know what, if you're an entrepreneur, why are you working for someone else? Why are you looking for opportunities to do stuff that is more authentically true to who you are? Because in long story short, my family, part of the family lore, the genealogy of our family is that my father was a Lutheran minister and a college professor. And the family story goes all the way back five, six generations to a ship captain named Sonk Knutten. And as the story goes, Sonk was a ship captain and he was in the South Pacific and he was shipwrecked on an island where there were cannibals. And he was he was going to be eaten the next day. This is how the story goes. He was going to be eaten the next day, but he was able to use the ship's compass to make the natives think that he was a shaman or some type of holy man because the needle always pointed the same way. And so they let him go and he went, he made his way back to North Germany, what Denmark and became a postmaster. But then he's became a very active member in the Lutheran church. And so he swore that night, God, if you get me out of this, I will give my life to the Lutheran church. Well, he became a postmaster, but he had multiple daughters and a couple sons. 
The sons became ministers and the daughters all married ministers. And for the next five generations in my family, there were Lutheran ministers, including my father. Mm. Of the four kids, including my brother who's passed away, we as kids would play the game. Well, who's going to be the pastor? Who's going to be the minister? <laughs> and all of them said, you, you are the one. And I'm like, no, I don't want to be the one. I am no. <laughs> and so for the longest time in the back of everybody's head was, well, you know, he'll come around. He's going to be a minister. He's going to, you know, and, and I'm like, no, I'm the furthest thing from that. And even as a kid, I knew that was not me. It would not work. So don't even try. And I'm not going to say with the, the passing of my father that suddenly dissipated, but I never bought it. But what I did do is say, you know what? Be true to who you are. You've always known it. The whole creative side of what I do, the, the writing and the creative direction and stuff like that. That's all aligned with who I am and my talents and my gifts mm-hmm. and my uh, abilities. But maybe I could take it in an even more personal way by doing it for myself with, of course, for other people, because I, I work with them. I collaborate with them. Right. You know, my, the company name on my invoices is collaborator creative. Why? Because I'm your creative collaborator. I have the skills that you may not. I have the ears that you may not. When you think I want this, I ask questions till I hear, Ooh, what you need is this. (laughs) There's a difference between want and need. Yeah. And my, my kind of superpower is the ability to figure out what that is. Yeah. I'm not going to say that the passing of my father and my brother was the fork in the road, but it certainly was a a little bit of a burr under my intellectual saddle. That's making me go, Mm. if I die tomorrow, will I have be happy working for someone else my entire life when I've always wanted to do it for myself? I think that that's a really powerful revelation in addition to the fact that you suddenly became present and that was your goal, right? Because you were saying, oh, the only time I was really present was in that one moment with my brother. I love that you pulled that Ram Das moment into the future with you, but it's also so easy for people to kind of justify, oh, well, this person died. So now I can move into the future I want or picture for myself. So I really appreciate you saying that's actually not how it works. Because it's a misnomer. It's one of those moments where people use that kind of a falsehood to justify the idea of moving through the grief and saying that it's healed when the truth is, no, we wrestle with those things and they are an ongoing healing process. So I, I love that you brought that up because that would be a very long history to be laboring under for a long time. Well, yeah, it, it is until you go, you know what? It doesn't apply to me. Right. It doesn't have to apply to me. And you, know, you don't have to change your name to, to prove that the sins of the past no longer affect me. You can just say, no, I know who I am. Yeah. And if anything, that can, anything good came out of that kind of call it grief episode where you got a brother and a father that die so quickly after each other, it's what are you waiting for? Do it now. You know, you've always known the truth. Start living it. You know, and it's not like I dumped my family and went off to an ashram in Oregon or anything like that. But I I did make moves to more appropriately align my professional life with my personal life. 
And now, frankly, there's no difference between the two. (laughs) Which is beautiful. And I want to end this by asking a question specifically about that, because in my work, I'm constantly pulling, trying to pull that same narrative out of people. What are you made of at the baseline? Like, who are you and how do we find what brings realignment in your life? Because it's going to be different for every person. What is the one thing that you would say to a griever? that kind of aligns with what you do. What's the one thing you would look for or help them try to look for in their story to give them a baseline, to find that identity of what makes them come alive? Like what's a tool that you would use for people? One thing is there's, we kind of alluded to it earlier that if you look at grief the wrong way, it becomes all about you rather than a celebration or uh, a memory remembrance Thing of them. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want to turn a grief event into an opportunity to, to make it about you, but there is a quotient or a, a, a portion of it that should be an opportunity to say, what does this mean to me going forward? How, how can I take this and find the good out of it? How can I take some of this energy that tends towards negative energy and and turn it to some positive energy, become more in touch with who I actually am so that I can move forward. Because here's the thing, grief can keep you in one place and not allow you to move forward. And the key to it is getting past, breaking through that shell and then turning that burden into a gift you carry with you as you move forward into a life that is truly yours, more completely yours and more completely aligned with who you actually are. It is not a sin to reflect on who you are and what's important to you and then act on those things. Because the takeaway from certain grief events should be, if that happened to me, where would I be? What would I do? I don't know if this is making any sense, but it, it, for, for me, I did not want to take this grief event and, and make it this thing that stops, this obstacle. I wanted to be able to move forward with it and carry it forward. So I guess I would ask people to look at it and say, how can I find the positive energy out of this that can allow me to move forward in a way that honors the people, the things, the whatever that I'm grieving about? Yeah. That's that idea of looking for the positive gets so abused by people who don't want to process it and they go silver linings so quickly. Oh, yeah. um, and that I love that you didn't do that. Like I, it's so evident through your story that you sat with it and you waited even beyond, even before you were ready to really wrestle with your story to the point where you found, okay, I have some steady ground here. I'm ready to change the perspective here and look at myself compassionately and say, where am I moving forward with this? How do I pull this and integrate my loss that is true and unchangeable into the fullness of who I am and become a larger person internally because of it? Because it sounds like it has just expanded the way that you see yourself and people around you. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And I think about it too. And that what would Tom want me to be doing? Hmm. He doesn't want to be worshipped as some type of, <laughs> I don't know, some yeah. demigod no. in my life or something. <laughs> no platforms for them to sit upon. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about people who have ancestor worship as part of their 
traditional background and stuff like that. I'm not, I don't want to come off that way, but, but my brother would be, well, put it this way, routinely in my family, when people pass away, they are cremated and no one ever, we talk about it we, yeah. we, and there are reasons for it. It's like, don't worship the ground or, or where we might happen to be. By all means, take ashes and spread them at my favorite places and stuff like that, because that's what I want you to do. I want you to go to my favorite places. If you want to come talk to me, you'll come to this place that we shared together. Yeah. You know, and, and so it becomes, again, the word celebration implies too much festivity when it should be a, more about introspection and shared memories and stuff like that. But still, it is a celebration. We like when you celebrate someone's life, like a, at an Irish wake, mm-hmm. Irish wakes are a celebration mm-hmm. of someone's life and an affirmation that life must go on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a, a beautiful thing. And I think it's important. I mean, I know we're not poo-pooing on anybody's traditions, but it's important to recognize our own faith traditions and, and spiritual practices and just family traditions are central to our story. And like you said, from the beginning, reckoning with what you want and who you are is paramount to all of this. So I, I am so grateful that you came on the show today, DP. And I hope that our audience got some beautiful tidbits out of this because you have so much richness in what you shared and just the way you've processed things. If anyone is interested, you mentioned all of your stuff at the top, but what's the one place they can come find you? Well, the best place would be to go to nonfictionbrand.com. Okay. That is where you can find out about my books, about me as a speaker and presenter, about my podcast, et cetera. So again, nonfictionbrand.com. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. And I just, again, thank you for being here with me today. It was precious. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you for listening to episode 45 of Restorative Grief. It's incredible to think about how the practice of becoming present with our lives can genuinely shift the way we experience our stories and ourselves. I love the genuine way DP talks about generating self-compassion because if anything, we know that grievers are really skilled at being too hard on ourselves. Practicing extravagant generosity on behalf of our own healing hearts is a gift worth giving. If this is your first time listening to Restorative Grief, thank you for being here. Welcome. I hope you gained something really meaningful from this conversation. And I also want to let you know that there is a premium subscription available. For just $4.99 a month, you can gain access to resources, one-on-one coaching questions, and exclusive interviews with grievers, grief professionals, and everyone in between. You can sign up for that with the link in the show notes or visit anchor.fm slash Mandy I think that's the address. I might be wrong. With the exception of my one-on-one coaching practice, all of the grief resources I create are free. I've been doing this grief online work for two years now, and the subscription option for the podcast is one of the best ways you can support this work and continue to keep it going for the people who need it the most. I'll be honest, there are way more people than I can ever hope to support or reach, so using this podcast as the means to do so helps get the insight and the work as far as possible. So with that said, whether you subscribe or not, I do hope you'll take time to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to the show and consider sharing this episode with someone that you can ask some curious questions of about the content. And one last thing before you go, please remember 
The only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.